Again, I want to encourage you, be inviting people. It's one of those things where you walk out afterward and you say, I should have invited so-and-so. If I had only known, I would have invited you know, an unsaved family member or friend or somebody that knows the Lord, just to be an encouragement to them. Thanks, Pastor Bill. Uh, be praying also. I just got clearance to get um, Pottersfield into Monta Vista Christian School to do their chapel. So be pl- praying about that. It's going to happen either on that Wednesday or Thursday. We've, we've got to call into Mike to make sure that's going to work for him. So just be praying all those details work out. I'd love to have a thousand kids in that school be able to be ministered to by uh, that ministry. Amen? Amen? All right. Joshua chapter 9. Because we have a lot of uh, family from out of town, I will catch you guys up. But I do that every week, don't I? But just to catch you guys up and give you the context, Joshua is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. We've talked about how the first five books of the Bible, called the Septuagint, or the Law of Moses, or the Pentateuch, meaning five books. In those five books, we see the law being given to the children of Israel. We see the sinfulness of man, a separation from God, him being in bondage in Egypt. Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. We saw them being delivered out of bondage through Passover. Passover was taking the blood of the lamb and putting it onto the doorpost in the shape of the cross. You must take the blood of the lamb, it must be applied, and those who had the blood of the lamb, a picture of Jesus, in the shape of a cross, then the angel of death passed over and they escaped death. Now through the Passover, they were then delivered out of bondage in Egypt. Egypt again being a type of the world, as you and I are delivered out of the bondage of sin and delivered from this world through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They then headed out and crossed through the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us that the Red Sea is a picture or a type of water baptism. So for you and I as believers, it's that public confession. It's an outward statement of an inward change. It's letting the whole world know we want to be recognized as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, as soon as they left, they came to Mount Sinai. That was there in the book of Leviticus where the law was given, along with Exodus, the law was given. And as the law was being given to them, it revealed to them their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. That's what the law is. The law is a taskmaster. And through that, the sacrificial system was set into place. And as I've said, every single Old Testament picture is a picture of a New Testament principle. Jesus is in every single chapter of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all His story, and it's all pointing to Him. Now we know what happened, God gave them a clear command, and they were to take an 11 day journey and head into the land of promise. But we know what happened, that 11 day journey turned into a 40 year death march because they disobeyed God. They thought they knew better than God. They sent spies into the land of Canaan, ten of the spies came back and said there's giants in the land, if we go in there they'll smoke us. So we can't go in there. Now two came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, you know what, God will give us victory. Let's trust in his word, let's go. They rejected it, and they all, that entire generation died in the wilderness. Now Deuteronomy, the last of the books, is numbers should be called in the wilderness. It talks about their 40 years of travel in the wilderness. Deuteronomy means second giving or second law. In Deuteronomy, the law was then given again to the next generation. Passing down the truth to the next generation in preparation for them to enter into the land of promise. Now we know that because of his sin, Moses was not able to enter in. What did Moses do except for stand for God? Seems unfair that Moses, who walked with God with three million whiners when everybody was complaining against God, and Moses was standing for God, he would be unable to enter in. But those who are put in positions of authority... For the Lord are held to a higher level of accountability. And what did Moses do? He hit the rock when he's supposed to speak to it. The rock's a picture of Jesus. The rock had already been hit once, so when he hit it again, it was a picture of, again, showing that the Lord was angry with his people when he was not. And because of that, God said, Moses, you're not going to enter in. Now, Moses is a picture or a type of what? The law. Very good. Now, Moses was not able to enter in, so it was handed off to his successor instead, who was anointed in his place to take the people in, and his name was Joshua. Joshua's name is also Yahshua, which is the same name as Jesus. Because the law cannot bring us into the land of promise, Moses, that's why Joshua, or Jesus, does. Amen? 
So we see the type, the picture there, that the law can't get you into heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't keep the law well enough to earn God's favor. That's why Jesus had to come. So finally we get to Joshua, and they finally enter in after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And yet before they enter in, there was one more barrier that they crossed over. It was what? Jordan River. Now the Jordan River is a type or a picture of? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So again, you've been born again. Many people, I believe, are Christians, born again, new creations in Christ, yet living in the wilderness. They're living a spiritually dry life. They're not having an impact on the world around them. They need to have more than just the Holy Spirit with them, their conscience, or in them at salvation, but upon them. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit, having an impact on the world around them. So finally, as they enter in, they cross over the Jordan. It parts much like the Red Sea as the ark goes before them. They build an altar of remembrance in the Jordan. And as soon as they get to the other side, there could be this thought process that now I finally entered in and now all my problems are behind me. Now I'm living the Spirit-filled life. Now I'm walking in the center of God's will. I'm never going to have any more problems. But we found out that, guess what? There was more trouble on the other side of the Jordan. Because the enemy was waiting there. And so when they went over the other side, the first obstacle they ran to in chapter 6 was Jericho. Now remember this story. This is the greatest foe they're going to face in all of Canaan. And they walk up, and how does God have them fight this foe? The first thing he has them do is go up to Jericho with 25-foot tall walls, 20 feet wide, and just march around it silently day after day. So all they had to do was get to look at how huge their enemy was. And those of you who have been coming, we talked about the fact that God wanted them to see how great the enemy was so when he defeated it, they could realize how great their God is. And it was when they walked by, they weren't allowed to speak and they just continually looked day after day at the greatness of this foe that then they realized how great God was when they simply walked around and blew trumpets and God brought it down. Now remember that Jesus appeared to Joshua right before this happened. The commander, remember that? And he appeared to him and he encouraged him and let him know. And again, we need to hear from the Lord because often he's going to ask us to do things or he's going to instruct us to do things that from our perspective seem impossible. But you know what? We need to trust the Lord because our God is greater than anything we can possibly imagine. And so they blew the trumpets, they marched around seven times, the walls came tumbling down. But then we got to chapter 7 and we saw how quickly that we can get caught up in our flesh. Because they had defeated a huge enemy, and now they sent spies out to look at a smaller city, the city of Ai. Ai means heap or dump, so dump city, right? So up go these guys to look, and they go, you know, there's hardly anybody there. It's not a big deal. Just send a couple thousand people up there. And so they went up there to Ai. They didn't seek the Lord. They just sent them up there, and what happened? They lost. Why? Because they did it in their flesh. See, the sad thing is God can do great things in our life and then we start thinking we've got something to do with it. We start taking credit for it. We start trusting in ourselves and God's heart all along is that we would remain desperate for Him. In intimate fellowship with the Lord. And God had commanded Joshua that before you go into any battle, you need to go before the high priest and say, what is the Lord's will? Well, why did they get defeated? Well, we know from the text the reason they got defeated was there was sin in the camp. Remember what happened? When they went into Jericho, they were to take all the spoils and give them to to the Lord. And Achan took some gold and some silver and a, a coat, and he took these things back for himself. Things that were to be dedicated to the Lord, he used for himself. That should be a message to us as believers. This was their first conquest, and God gets the first fruits, not the last fruits. Amen? First fruits of our time, our finances, our gifts, everything, he gets first pick, not what's left. Not the drooling on your Bible at 11.30 at night after your day's over. Amen? Give God the first part. When you're fresh, give Him the first part of your day. And so, chapter 7, they get wiped out and, and Joshua starts to murmur against God. Like, God, how did you let this happen? And God reveals to him, there's sin in the camp. And they brought Achan out. And what happened to Achan? Achan was killed and so was his entire family. God made it very clear to everybody that, you know what, He's not going to allow idol worship or idolatrous things to be brought back into the camp. He said, these are my children. You're not going to bring that stuff into the camp. And Achan, because you disobeyed God, you're going to die. Now they went in, last week, we saw in chapter 8, they went into Ai again. 
But this time, they sought the Lord's counsel. And if you remember, God humbled Joshua. How did he humble him? He made him, what, what did they use for a tactic to win the battle? Who remembers? They had to run away, remember? You know, Joshua, mighty warrior, he walks in there and he has to sit in the valley. And when daylight came, he had to run away like he was afraid. He had to lay in ambush, which was kind of a cowardly way to fight. And God was making Joshua humble before him. But because he obeyed, God gave them victory. And it's interesting that God gave them all the spoils of Ai. So if Achan had just waited a few more days, instead of dying, he would have been blessed by God. You know what, guys? We need to learn to be patient and wait upon the Lord. Amen? We're trying to make it happen. We're trying to get in front of God instead of waiting upon the Lord. And so we see that they defeat Ai, they've won another victory, and that brings us to tonight's text in chapter 9. Now, is that putting it in context or what? Amen? All right. So now we come to chapter 9, and as we get to chapter 9, we're going to see once again, God has brought them victory in this picture of the Spirit-filled life, but sadly, we're going to see that yet again, Joshua and the men of Israel are going to fall into the same trap that they fell into in chapter 7. Before it was fleshly pride that allowed them to think, oh, it's a little enemy, I can take care of it myself. Oh, this is not a major deal in my life, Lord, I got it. I got it, no problem, I don't need your help. You know what, without him we can do nothing, all right? And so we need the Lord at all times. When we start to trust in ourselves, instead of being desperate for God, we're in trouble. And so he got in his flesh in chapter 7, well, in tonight's text, we're going to see fleshly wisdom leave him open for deception. Where fleshly pride left him open for destruction, fleshly wisdom is going to leave him open for deception. And so in chapter 9, if you're taking notes tonight, here are the, the points. I titled the message, The Enemy and the Spirit-Filled Believer. The Enemy and the Spirit-Filled Believer. And here are the points. We're going to see the enemy's thoughts towards you. Do you know the enemy has thoughts about you? He absolutely does. And they're not good. Amen? So we're going to see the enemy's thoughts toward the believer and the tact tactics that he uses. And we're going to see two very clearly different tactics that he uses. One of them, the Bible talks about Satan being a roaring lion. And the Bible also talks about him being a serpent, a deceiver. So sometimes the enemy is going to attack you, as we'll see tonight, just in your chest, full force, straight at you. And other times, he's going to use subtlety to deceive you. Both of those things we'll see in the text tonight. Then we're going to see the source of Israel's failure. So the enemy's thoughts towards the believer, the source of their failure, and then lastly, once we've blown it, now what? How are we to, how are we to respond when we've failed? How many of you need to hear about that tonight, amen? I've blown it, God still wants to use me, absolutely. So how do we respond when we've failed? We're faithful to the word and we trust, God, trust in God's grace, okay? So the second, that, that last point is how do we respond when we failed in battle? We trust in the word of God, we're faithful to his word, and we trust in God's grace. So let's pick up in verse 1, looking at a message titled, The Enemy and the Spirit-Filled Believer, beginning by looking at the enemy's thoughts toward the believer, his tactics to render you ineffective for the kingdom. Look at verse 1, beginning by looking at a roaring lion. Look what it says in verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings were on the side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it. Now, all the kings got together. Now, here's what's interesting. These kings hated each other. These kings were mortal enemies that fought with each other constantly. But now, with God's people coming into the land, these guys all of a sudden have a common enemy, and where they once were divided and fighting with each other, they're going to be united and coming against God's people. Now, you know what? We see that in the world today, don't we? We see those who are enemies of one another joining together to come against the Lord and to come against God's people. Now this is not something unusual because we know later on the same thing will happen when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians who couldn't stand each other. The Pharisees were the legalists of the day who kept the law. 
The Sadducees were the liberals who didn't believe in the literal truth of the word. And the Herodians were those who were on the side of the Roman government overseeing the Jewish people. The Pharisees hated the Romans. The Sadducees hated the Romans. The Herodians hated everybody. They all hated each other, and yet they were all on each other's side when it came to Jesus. They came together and questioned him. They came together and cried out, crucify him. And it's amazing how people who can't stand each other all of a sudden are united when it comes to coming against God. Well, guess what? There's another one coming. In Revelation 19, it says all the, all the armies of the world are going to band together to fight against God. How's that going to work out? Not too good. Those of you who go to Israel with us, we're going to be in the valley of, of, you know, of Armageddon. And in Armageddon is where all the, the armies of the world are going to be mounted up, and we're going to come back with the Lord after the seven-year tribulation, and we're going to fight against the armies of the world, and when God's on your side, you win. Amen? Every single time. Me plus God is the majority. And so right here, what happened is, they heard, it says at the end of that verse, they heard it. All the kings get together, what did they hear? They heard about the victories that the children of Israel had won. They heard about them getting out of Egypt. They heard about the parting of the Red Sea. They heard about Sihon and Og, the two giants who they destroyed and wiped out on the other side of Jordan. They've now heard about Jericho, and now they've heard about Ai, and they know if we don't do something, we're in trouble. This is one of the enemy's tactics when it comes to your life. He will mount up the most mighty way he can come at you, the hardest way he can come at you, and he will come at you full force in hope that you will respond one of two ways. In fear that you will run away or that you will get into your flesh and try to battle him in your flesh. You know, the enemy's won if you start trying to battle him in your flesh. Every time. Every time. You know what we need to do when the enemy comes? Turn to the Lord. We don't fight the enemy. Let God do it. Amen? When the enemy comes, just get behind the Lord and say, okay, Lord, take care of it. Amen? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What does the enemy, what does Satan think about you? He hates you. And you know what else? He wants you destroyed. Now, as a Christian, you're a new creation in Christ and you're going to heaven and Satan can't stop that from happening. He can't. But you know what he wants to do? Make you as ineffective for the kingdom as possible. You know what? Satan's resources are limited. You've heard me say this many times. So who is he going after? He's going to go after those who are having the greatest impact on the world for the kingdom of God. If you're sitting here tonight saying, I've never been persecuted in my life, I would say, you need to get saved. <laughs> or if you say, oh, I haven't persecuted in a long time, you better start walking with the Lord. Amen? Because again, if, if you're partying and drinking and sleeping around and doing, I mean, if your life's a train wreck, the enemy's got, hey man, no, I'm not going to waste any of my resources on this person. Let me go after those who are being effective for the kingdom. They've heard about the mighty hand of God moving through the land of promise, a picture of the spirit-filled life, and the enemy's not going to sit by and let it happen. Now the interesting part is, I believe that Joshua and these guys had no idea that the enemy was mounting up. They probably thought, we're just going to go pick them off one at a time. They're all sitting, hiding in their towns, just like the last two people were. And we're just going to go pick them off one at a time. And all the while, they're all coming together to mount up as an army to attack Israel. Some of us think that Satan's just sitting over here on the side, and as long as we don't mess with him, he won't mess with us. That's not the truth. Now, I want to say this. Satan gets too much credit sometimes. You know, God is... the God is greater than Satan by, it's not even close, amen? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. There's no comparison. But at the same time, we need to understand that there is an enemy. And the Bible tells us we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. The battle we have is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And that's why it needs to be fought on our knees and in the word. And so it says there that the kings, you know, they had a reason to be afraid. They've seen what's been happening, so they mount up together. And, and they know that they're, based on the promises of God's word, that they're done. They know they can't win, according to the word. And they're going to try to fight against it. Who does that sound like? Satan knows he can't win. Amen? He already, next time he reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Amen? Let him know, because that's where he's going. And the point is that he's a defeated foe. He cannot win. But he wants to take as many w people with him as possible. Misery loves company, and Satan's the king of it. Amen? Amen. Now, he, so we see in verse 2, 
And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So these guys who were all enemies of each other gathered together with one common foe. And their common foe, united in hatred for them, are the people of God. And as I said, it was a foreshadowing of things to come because the same thing would happen in the time of Jesus and the same thing will happen at the end of time right before the millennial kingdom. Joshua and the children of Israel, again, are totally oblivious to this attack coming. They needed to be warned of it. So here's one of the ways that the enemy comes against us. The enemy comes in full force sometimes. You know, and he can't keep you out of heaven, but he wants to attack your family. He wants to attack your marriage. He wants to keep you from using your gifts. He wants to, again, keep you from impacting others for the kingdom of God. He can't keep you out of heaven, but he can keep you from being a person who walks a spirit-filled life. And that's what he wants to do. Now, he is that roaring lion. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is, in, is on the attack in hopes of producing a fearful retreat or for us to respond in our fleshly pride. You know what? I can, I'll, I'll just be real open with you. There are times when I know Things in my, going on in my house, things going on in my thought I know it's the enemy. Man, that's the enemy. Because he wants to render us ineffective. He wants to do whatever he can to keep us from proclaiming the gospel, from using the gifts God's given us. Next time you're discouraged about using your gift, remember who's discouraging you. That's not the Lord, amen? The Lord is encouraging you. The Lord wants you to step out and use your gifts. Hey, you guys know it. Here at Calvary Chapel, I want to see as many of you using the gifts God's giving you as possible. I love to give ministry away. And you know what? We've we're, we're all got different gifts, and if we don't use them, the body will suffer. So Satan wants to render the spirit-filled believer disqualified or ineffective. So the enemy and the spirit-filled believer... The enemy's tactics or the thoughts towards a believer, number one, a roaring lion seeking to devour you, attacking you straight on. But I believe much more often is the kind of attack we're going to see next. And that's where he comes in as a subtle serpent, craftily seeking to deceive you, attempting to get you to trust in your own fleshly wisdom or human reasoning instead of trusting in the Lord. Most attacks don't come straightforward. Most of them come around the side and draw us away slowly. And we don't even realize it's happening. The subtlety of the devil. And we see that in God's word that he's referred to as a serpent who does that. Look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gideon, Gibeon heard that Joshua had, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. Now Gibeon was a large royal city. Notice they're not listed in the list of all the other cities that have come together who are going to attack Israel. They're going to roar like a lion. Well, let's go get them. Well, Gibeon, on the other hand, instead decides, let's find another way to get to Israel. Let's find another way to keep them from destroying us. We've heard how great their God is. We've got to do something to keep from being destroyed. Now, Gibeon was a royal city, a metropolitan city, if you will, a very affluent city that was only 25 miles from where the Israelites were stationed in Gilgal. Now, Gilgal, if you guys remember, was a place where they had set up an altar to the Lord. It was a place where the men were circumcised again, you know, those because they hadn't been when they were in the wilderness. It was a place where they reinstituted the Passover. And all of those things were happening to remind them to get their eyes back on God. So they're encamped at Gilgal. They've won a battle at Jericho. They've won a battle at Ai. And they're back in Gilgal, waiting to get direction from the Lord as to where they're to go next. Now, Gibeon, here's the story of what has happened. How they, It says in verse 3 that they'd wiped out Jericho, they'd wiped out Ai, and they thought in their minds, how can we avoid from being next? They may have been the next closest city. I don't know for sure, but they may have been the next clo- 25 miles, not very far. And so they thought, what can we do? So they come up with a plot to deceive Israel. And again... The Lord must be at the forefront of our thoughts because if He's not, we're going to make the same mistake that Israel makes here. Look what it says. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. Now, craftily, it's interesting, the word there is the same place where you get the word wiles, the wiles of the devil. 
And the word in the Hebrew language means one of subtle deception or trickery. In 2 Corinthians 11, it says this, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's the same word, the craftiness of the devil. So they were being crafty, something they learned from the enemy, to come in with subtlety to get the children of Israel's eyes off of God and to be able to draw them away. It says in Ephesians 6, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So this craftiness is a picture of what Satan does in our lives. And so here they come sneaking in. And look what it says they did. They pretended to be ambassadors. Not a roaring attack, but a subtle deception. They don't come in holding weapons. They come in instead using their words to draw them away from the truth. The only true defense for subtle deception is is spirit-filled discernment. If you're not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be so easily taken away by the deception of this world. You're going to be easily deceived. But if you're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, when somebody comes in and tells something that's not true, by the power of the Spirit, you'll be able to discern that it's a lie. Satan often appears, the Bible says, as an angel of light. He's plotting against you day and night. Think about that. Satan's up. He doesn't go to sleep. So Satan, day and night, is plotting, how can I get Dave? How can I get Charles? How can I get, how can I get you? How, what can I do? What can I do to draw you away? What's your weakness? Let me go get him. Let me go head on sometimes and let me subtly deceive them and draw them away. Isn't that what he did to Eve? Isn't that what he does? And that's what he does even today. Now, again, I don't want anybody to walk out of here bummed out thinking Satan's way too powerful for you because he's not. Amen? Devil can't make you do anything. But he wants to draw you into his temptation, luring us with, with prideful, worldly, and lustly thoughts. And again, the other end of the lure is Satan trying to catch you and snag you. And worldly wisdom is no substitute for spiritual discernment. So they pretend to be ambassadors. You know, pretend to be ambassadors. Who's the father of lies? Satan. So they're going to come in and lie. This is their plan. Let's go lie. And so they show up. Look at second half of verse 4. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Now here's what they did. They dressed the part of a distant traveler. And they wanted to deceive Israel into thinking they had come from a far distance when they came from 25 miles away. Because they wanted to be able to come and deceive them into making a covenant with them, a promise with them. Now as we're going to see as we continue on, God had told them, long before that when you get into Canaan, kill everybody. You guys remember that? People struggle with that. Remember this though. All the people in Canaan had 400 years to repent and refused to. So God is a faithful, a loving, and a merciful God, but His mercy will come to an end at some point. And that's what's happened for Canaan. And Satan, being the father of lies, he's going to dress up his lies to make it something that people would believe. And certainly... No, they've got a good plan here. Let's go in, make them think we're from far away. We can enter into a covenant. They can't kill us then. Look at verse 6. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So they come to Joshua, the mighty warrior, God's anointed leader for his children. And the men of Israel, it says there, I believe a reference to the elders, which would be 70 elders. So they come to the most spiritually mature guys in the camp. And when they get there, all they say is, we're from a far country, make a covenant with us. Now a covenant was an oath or a promise that could not be broken and was usually solidified with a sacrifice. Now let me just say this as a warning to everybody. If you meet a stranger and they immediately want to make a covenant with you, run away. Amen? I want to get to know somebody before I'm joining my life to them. Amen? This covenant here is being yoked together. I'm amazed how many people come into my office, they've been dating two weeks. We've got to get married. You're not in love, you're in heat. Slow down. Amen? <laughs> Too often what happens is, again, we've got to close the deal. We've got to make this happen. Whoa, slow down. 
And I want to tell you, girl, the guy will tell you anything. Liars. Amen? And that's what's happening here. They come in and they're lying through their teeth. Make the covenant. Come on. Let's close the deal. And guys will do the same thing. And salespeople will do the same thing. You know, what is a lie? A lie is telling somebody what they want to hear so you can get what you want. Isn't that true? So that's what's happening here. They come in, and, they, and that should have been like the biggest red flag ever. Somebody walks in, you don't, make a covenant with us. Be joined to us. Let's slow down. Let's take some time. Let's go hear from the Lord. But sadly, they've just won another battle, and they're getting complacent yet again. The children of Israel, and especially Joshua, and those in leadership. This is an unverified story. How do they know they're really from far away? Certainly Joshua is going to use discernment. Again, be slow to enter into covenants, to raise up people in ministry, to join into partnership with somebody, to have somebody be your roommate. Can I encourage you? That's one of the things we deal with the most is people talking about, I moved in with this person, they said they're a Christian, it's been a disaster. Make sure you wait upon the Lord, Amen. Make sure you find out what that person really is spiritually, and you better believe when it comes to courtship, you better really make sure you've heard from God. Be slow to enter in. Use Holy Spirit discernment, not human wisdom. Look at verse 7. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's the the Gibeonites, that's another name because that's the region they were from, perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? Perhaps you dwell among us. Perhaps you dwell within Canaan, And if you do, we know that the Word of God has told us we cannot make a covenant with you. So if you live among us, how can we make a covenant with you? How can we go contrary to what the Bible says, is what they're saying. Now again, are there going to be those who tempt you to do things contrary to what the Bible says? All day long. What's amazing to me is people will even use the Bible to try to get you to do things contrary to the Bible. Why do we spend so much time in God's Word? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by Word of God. How are you going to know the the lie unless you understand the truth? How are you going to recognize the lie? And so what happens is the enemy will come in and people will come in and try to get you to do things. And again, people will come into counseling and tell me that God told them to do this and it's exactly contrary to what the Bible says. And then they wonder why Pastor Dave says, no, you're lying. They go, how do you know? I had this feeling. I had this emotion. I don't care. Here's what the Bible says. But God told me it was okay to date an unbeliever. No, he didn't. Amen? God told me it was okay to do this. God told me, no, the Bible says the exact opposite. God's never going to contradict his word. Amen? Ever. And we're always looking for, you know, some special dispensation for me. Well, God's got a special plan. You don't understand what's going on in my life. God's got a special, there's a chapter, maybe it's not in here, but you know, God's got something for me. No! The Word of God is faithful and true, amen? And so I want to encourage you, be in the Word, read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? Be in God's Word, and make sure you hear from the Lord, and He's directing you, not your emotions, because your emotions will lie. And people will lie, and try to draw you away from the truth. So the Lord had been very clear. In Deuteronomy, he said to them, Only in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. Is that pretty specific? You shall not leave alive anything that breathes. People, animals, nothing. But you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite. Who are these guys? What are they? They're Hivites. They're named in the Bible kill them now these guys show up and say make a covenant with us bible says do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers the guy says marry me run away amen don't go contrary to god's word trust the word of god above your emotions and so here these guys come they want to make a covenant these guys are you know joshua's smart enough to say well who are you says the second half of verse eight and where do you come from Who are you and where do you come from? That's a great question when entering into a relationship. Who are you and where do you come from? Amen? I need to get to know you a little bit. I need to watch your life a little bit before I enter into any kind of a covenant. And again, it's interesting and amazing 
while these guys are going to attempt to, you know, get it over on them, I find it interesting that they believed the Word of God, I think, almost more than the children of Israel did. Because they had heard, as we're going to see, that God was going to wipe out everybody in Canaan, and they believed it. So much that they went and said, we better tell a lie and get a covenant before they kill us. And yet, God's own people are sitting there not consulting the Word and going on their emotions. So the enemy believed the Word even more than God's own children do in this case. So they show up, they're asking for a covenant, who are you, where do you come from? And then they say, in verse 8, but they said to Joshua, we are your servants. So they said, we're your servants. He said, where are you from? Because being a servant is not the issue, it's whether or not you come from this land. Has God already said in His Word what your fate should be? Do we trust in the Word of God? Where are you from? Verse 9. So they said, from a very far country, your servants has come, have come. So what is that? That would be a what? That would be a lie. They're lying. People lie. Amen? People lie all the time. I read that in uh, a newspaper that said like 94% of people confess that they lie consistently. The other 6% were lying. <laughs> people lie. People exaggerate. People do all, that's what they do. And so these guys come and they're lying. Oh, we're from a faraway country. Now, the rest of that verse says, and I like this part, because of the name of the Lord your God, We have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. So again, because of the name of the Lord your God, again, while there's seemingly a reference to them being on a religious quest, we know that's a lie, but at the same time, there's some truth to what they're saying. It is because they're afraid of our God. They're afraid of of the true and living God, like we better get a covenant with them or their God's going to smoke us. We better hurry up and get them on our side quickly or we're going to be in trouble. And so they said, because of your God. So the Lord's name had already traveled throughout all of Canaan. A bunch of the tribes had gotten together and said, we're going to go fight them. The Gibeonites decide, let's go deceive them and join them and get on their side and then we'll be safe. It's what the enemy will do too. He'll subtly draw you away and try to get you away from the truth. Telling you lies all the way. And so they, they lie, they're lying again. And then it says in verse 10. And all that he did to the king of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Now, they know what God has done. Because they said, you got out of Egypt, Red Sea parted, you wiped out the enemies on the other side, what you've done to Jericho, what you've done to Ai, wow. We thought, we better come get on your side. But They understood also that the word said everybody in Canaan would die, so they had to make it appear like they came from further away than Canaan. We came from a faraway country. We're not one of those people you're supposed to kill. We're from far away, and now we're coming near, and we want to be joined to you guys, and we want to join your church. And they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. We want to come in and be a part of who you are, and really what they're doing is lying all the while. Israel known for the work God had done through them. May that be said of us. May the world know us for the, God, for the work of our God through us. Amen? Amen? They knew and said, you wiped these guys out and you did these great things. May people know, the Bible says they shall know us by the love we have one for another. People ought to see that love active in our lives. Verse 11. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying... Take provisions with you for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. They're lying again. All the elders got together and gave us all these provisions and we've traveled this far distance. Make a covenant with us. Have you noticed they've got, they they have some other words they're saying, but they got one goal. Make a covenant with us. Sounds like some of the people lying to you. Got one goal. Give me what I want. I'll tell you another lie. Give me what I want. I'll tell you another lie. Give me what I want. This is the enemy, a picture of that subtlety of the enemy trying to draw them away, again, by deception. Lies, promises, asking for a commitment. Most common of lies, again, are telling people what you think they want to hear to bring about your desired end. If it doesn't work, we'll give you your money back. Liars. 
You know I love you. We're going to get married soon. It's okay if we sleep together. Liar! Amen? Liar. You know the common one we get all the time? I'm amazed how many people call us at the church office who go to another Calvary chapel who don't know their pastor's name. They'll always call and say, I go to another Calvary and, you know, we, and, and I already know, I know the next sentence is going to be, I need money. But they're lying because they'll go, I'll go, really? Where, where do you go to church? Oh, it's in Southern California. Where? Oh, it's in Orange County. What city? Oh, it's in uh, uh, Huntington Beach. Who's the pastor there? Um, I don't remember. They always say that. So what they do is they try to find something in common. They're looking at the name of your church. I go to a Calvary chapel. You know, they probably call the name. I'm, I'm an Episcopal. I'm a Presbyterian. You know, whatever, it, whatever lie will work to get me in the door. And it's amazing how those same lies are told. They got one motivation to get what they want. The same thing is happening here. They're coming in, lying through their teeth. They'll tell them whatever they have to say. You know why? Because their lives are on the line. They know if we don't get these guys on our side, we're going to die. And so we have to do whatever is necessary. Check out people's stories, but more importantly, seek discernment from God. Pray and wait. That, isn't that the hardest one? You know, there's three answers to prayer. Yes, no, and wait. Yes and no, we can deal with. Wait, not so much. Come on, right? Don't we want an answer? I've had people say, I've been praying just fervently and God won't answer my how long you praying. Two weeks. God hasn't answered my prayer. You know, we're mad at God, you know. Man. You know, the Bible says that to God a thousand years is to a day is a day to a thousand years, two weeks, like a quarter of a second, right? I mean, it's no time at all. And we need to learn to be patient. We pray in our time, God answers in His. Amen? And so they come and they're pressing for the covenant. Give us the covenant. Give us the covenant. This would be a good time to stop and pray. Amen? You know what, guys? Why don't you guys go hang out over there for a while? We're going to have a prayer meeting. I'll get back to you. Instead, again, they keep getting pressed. Come on, give us a commitment. Look at verse 12. Therefore, it says, make a covenant with us. The bread of ours we took hot for provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. And now look, it's dry and moldy. That would be another what? Liars. Verse 13. And these wineskins, which were filled with new and see, now they are torn. These, these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. That would be another what? These guys lie through their teeth. Now, this long journey, this food was, this bread was hot. And, this bread, and we had wineskins. We've traveled so far. They've been traveling for a few hours. They just came over the hill. Throwing dirt on themselves to look dirty, you know what I mean? And they show up and are dry. You know, I find this interesting. Nothing's in the Bible by chance. Notice they mention bread and wine. And in the Bible, bread and wine. Communion, amen? And when we are communing with the Lord and walking in intimacy with God, we're not going to be deceived by the lies of the enemy. But their bread was moldy. They weren't in intimate fellowship with God at the moment, amen? Their wineskins were tore up and they weren't drinking. They weren't in communion or intimate fellowship with God. And so now they're going to fall for the lies of the enemy. And they tell them, hey man, we've been traveling a long ways, dry moldy bread and our stuff's falling apart. And man, you know, we're sleeping in our tent down by the river and we need some hotel money, right? And so we see this subtle plot, lie, deceive, lie, deceive. Lie, deceive. We've come from a very long journey. That's why our garments are torn up. So the enemy and the spirit-filled believer, the enemy's thoughts toward you, the tactics he uses, a roaring lion who just comes at you full force and tries to overwhelm you and have you run away in fear, or like the subtle serpent that comes and tries to deceive you, lies to you, draws you away slowly so they would take your eyes off of God. Now look how Joshua responds. Look at the source of Israel's failure in this chapter. It's a warning for all of us. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. What does that mean? That means they took some of the bread and they looked at it. They took the bread and went, yep, it's moldy. You're not lying to me. Moldy bread. You know what? When someone lies to you, often they're going to at least do a few things to make it look true. Some of them don't. I mean, I'm amazed at some of the lies I get told at the office. And it's so obvious you're lying. 
But in this case, they had the moldy bread. So they pulled out, yep. Now, here's the reason they fell. Look at the second half of that verse, if you underline anything in your Bible. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, looked at the bread, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. That's not good. When you don't seek God's guidance, don't blame it on God when it blows up in your face. Amen? That's often what happens. We want to do what we want to do. We disregard what God says. We don't care what the Bible says. I'm doing it. And then when it blows up, God, how could you let that happen to me? I'll never forget my daughter when she was really little. We lived in Lancaster, and we used to try to get her away from the stove, and she'd go over there and try to touch and reach up and grab hot things. We try to, I'll never forget one time, I find, you know, I'd slap her little hand and get away from that. And one time I hear this screaming from the other end of the house. I run over there, and she's, her hand's all right, and I realize she touched the hot stove. But she's looking at me like, how did I let this happen to her? I've warned you a hundred times. But it's my fault. And we do the same thing to God. Guys, he's given up his, his word for a reason. And he loves you. This is a love letter from Almighty God. He's trying to keep you from harm. And yet we go, I don't care. I'm just going to do it anyway. And then when the explosion happens, we want to blame it on God. So they did not seek the Lord. And nothing ever good comes from that. While the Gibeonites' deception was clever, the real problem was that Joshua and the leaders of Israel never turned to God. They acted without taking time to seek God's guidance. They walked by sight and not by faith. The Bible says to walk by faith, not by sight. And they walked by sight and not by faith. They examined the facts from a physical perspective instead of a spiritual one. They came to a logical and convincing conclusion based on the things they could see, and yet it was wrong. When people, the enemy is not going to put something in front of you that doesn't at least have some grain of credibility or we wouldn't fall for it. Although I've yet to figure out evolution. There's not a grain of credibility in that whole program, amen? amen. From the goo to the zoo to you, that doesn't work for me. There's no way that happened. But yet, people buy it hook, line, and sinker, right? He's got to give them some kind of a you know, plausible lie that they'll buy. So this lie is a plausible lie. They don't seek the Lord and they fall for it. Look at the next verse. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. God's word told them to do what to the Hivites? And what do they do instead? They let them live and make a covenant with them. They bring them into their family in a sense. Do not be uniquely yoked together with unbelievers. So I'm going to marry them anyway. I've sat across the table from dozens of people who want me to do their wedding and they're marrying an unbeliever and I tell them no and they're mad at me. And I say, look, I love you, okay? I don't want you, but I, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, I'm not going to do the wedding. If you're gonna do, I'm not going to stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day and do that. I can't. Amen? I love you. I'm going to pray for you. Now, we're going to see later on that God is still gracious. Maybe you're here tonight and you're married to an unbeliever. I want you to know that you should not have done that. But I also want you to know, as we're going to see in the second half of this chapter, God is still a gracious God, amen? amen? And God can still bring restoration even when we've totally blown it. Isn't that good? Because if it wasn't, we'd all be in big trouble, wouldn't we? Because we've all blown it. Psalm 33 tells us that the will of God comes from the heart of God, and He delights to make it known to His children when He knows they're humble and willing to obey. We don't see God's will like customers looking at options, but like servants listening for orders. We don't say, God, okay, show me your will. What's plan A, B, and C? Which one? Yeah. No, we come to the Lord and say, Lord, your will. Show me, I'll do it. Amen? We come, Lord, humble servants broken before Him. While we are to use the mind God gave us, we're not to lean on our own understanding. We're to, we don't check our brains at the door and do things in spite of the evidence. That would be superstition. But we do things in light of the evidence, in light of the leading of the Holy Spirit. We don't lean on our own understanding. So the lack of prayer resulted in a lack of discernment and an ungodly covenant in direct contrast to God's command, a swart that was a, uh, oath that was sworn, and an unequally yoked relationship. And you and I today are like Israel living in enemy territory. And we too need to use caution. When you believe in the enemy, instead of trusting the Lord, you can expect to get into trouble. Now, the enemy and the spirit-filled believer. Here's the, the grace part. How are we to respond when we failed in the battle? I've blown it, now what? Has Joshua just blown it? Big time. Children of Israel, they just blow it? Big time. Now what? 
Look at verse 16. And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near to them. You know the truth will always come out. How do you think Josh was feeling right about that point? Duh! Probably looked at the elders. You should have told me to pray, right? And they're all looking at each other. And they're embarrassed. Now what would be the easiest thing to do to make up for this mistake? Repent. No, that's not the, that's the right thing to do. What's the easiest thing to do? Get your sword out and kill them all. Before anybody notices that you let them live, right? Just kill them. Because that's what God told me to do, so kill them. It's much like somebody who runs off to Reno to marry somebody who's not saved, and then three days later wakes up and goes, what did I do? Now, the easiest thing to do would be kill No, not kill them, but... <laughs> we had a quickie marriage, just get a quickie divorce and forget about it. No, that's not God's plan, amen? So what does he say here? We found out. We've been done. On, we, you know, they got over on us. They subtly drew us away. We didn't heed God's word. How should we respond? Verse 17. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chipporah and Beroth and Kirjath-Jerim. Now, those are the cities of the Hivites. Normally, what would they have done? Wiped them out. But now they've made a covenant before God which says they can't wipe them out if they're going to honor their covenant. So now they have a choice to make. I've blown it. I've been embarrassed. I could walk in and wipe them out. Nobody will know the difference. I can justify it. I'm Joshua. only person above me is God. I'll just take care of it. They're probably mocking me because I've done this, and we're going to see that they do. But the key here is they didn't seek godly counsel. They didn't seek godly discernment. The consequences can last a lifetime. Look at verse 18. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Why didn't they attack? Because they gave them their word. You know what? The Bible says let your yes be yes and your no be no even if it's to your own harm. If you're here and you're married to an unbeliever, you stay married to him, you love him, you minister to him, you be salt and light to him, and may they come to see Christ in you. Amen? Now, you don't go marry an unbeliever and then go, then I'll missionary date and try to turn it around. Don't do that. It's never worth it. Ask somebody who, who got married to an unbeliever. It's not worth it. But if you're in that situation, now you're there. Now be faithful. Guess what? They've made the covenant. Now they're there. Be faithful. Go back to what the Word of God says. You make a covenant, you stand behind it. You make an oath, you stand behind it. You go back to making the Word of God the priority again. The Word of God stopped being the priority, you make it the priority again. Okay, I blew it. Okay, I got married to an unbeliever. Okay, I entered into a partnership and I'm bound to it for five years and I can't get out of it you know, with a business partner and I'm bound to it. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. Make the Word of God the priority from here on out. We're almost done. Verse... 19. Again, and I want to say this. There's no excuses once you've made the covenant. He tricked me. He lied to me. He told me he was saved and he really wasn't. You better know him well enough that his word, you got to see it in his actions, not just in his words. Amen? Take the time. That's why courtship is a good thing. Slow down. It's okay. Verse 19. Then the rulers said to all the congregation... We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. Now, the congregation got mad. Why? Because they let these foreigners come into the land. They'd gone outside of God's will, and now they're jumping on them because they're standing by the word. Sometimes you're going to stand by the word, and people aren't going to be happy. Often, you're going to stand by the word, and people aren't going to be happy. Verse 20. This we will do to them. We will let them live lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. You know what? If we, don't, if we kill them, then God's wrath's going to be on us. Okay, you don't correct one mistake with another one. You don't overcome the first sin by sinning again. Sin is never the answer to sin. Amen? Well, I blew it, so I got to cover it up, so I told a lie, I better lie again, I better take some money from here and steal from this to cover that. And No, just come forward. Once you've blown it, Get right with God. Make the word of God the priority again. 
If you're in a situation right now where you've been away from the Lord, make the Word of God the priority again. And be faithful to whatever covenants you've made. Later, Saul broke the vow. Did you know that? With the Gibeonites? Guess what happened to children of Israel when he did it? Three years of famine. Years later, Saul goes against the Gibeonites and God gives him three years of famine because he went contrary to this covenant made by Joshua. God takes those covenants serious. Alan Redpath says this, How can we ever match Satan and his subtle ways? He says, listen to me, never, never, never trust your own judgment in anything. When common sense says that a course is right, lift your heart to God, for the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in the direction completely opposite to what you might call common sense. When voices tell you your action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the throne of heaven. Then if you're still in doubt, dare to stand still. If you're called to act on and you don't have time to pray, don't act. If you're called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait to have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare to stand and wait on God, for none of them that wait on Him shall ever be ashamed. Amen? Do people pressure you to make a decision sometimes? If you haven't heard from the Lord, don't. Amen? Pastor Don was such a great example. I would see people come to him and, you have to make a decision today. He goes, okay, well then decisions, no. Well, no, you, you can have some time. You know what I mean? If you push me into it, I'm gonna, if I haven't heard from the Lord and I don't have a peace about it, I'm not going to do it. How are we to respond when we fail the battle? Be faithful to your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Make the word of God the priority again. Last point, trust in God's grace. Look what happens here. And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the, as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, why have you deceived us, saying, we are very far off when you were near to us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. Now, he's no doubt embarrassed. He can't kill them, but he can make them slaves, so that's what he does. All right, we can't kill you, so you're slaves. And you're going to be woodcutters and water carriers, and you're going to work in the tabernacle. Now, this is awesome. You know why? Because what was God's greatest concern about allowing the Canaanites to infiltrate the Israelites? What was his greatest concern? Idolatry. And so that they would not bring their idols into the camp, they instead made them servants in the tabernacle. So instead of you bringing idolatry in, we're going to have you serve and get to know our God. And the great thing about this is, because of God's grace, they do get to know the true and living God. Verse 24. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. You know what? I understand why they did it. Don't you? Your God's going to smoke everybody who's not on your side, so we lied to get on your side. Now, they shouldn't have lied, but they're pagan idol worshipers. They don't know any better, right? So they come in and say, we've got to get on their side or we're toast. And we've heard about your God and we've seen what he's done and we've, we have, we're afraid of him. The fear of God is the beginning of what? They, they were afraid and because of that, they said, we've got to do it. They didn't come attack. They said, attacking God will get smoked. So we've got to do something else. So let's try to get near them and tell them whatever we have to tell them so they'll let us be on their side. This is a picture to me of repentance. Look at the next verse, verse 25. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. These guys, next chapter we're going to see that these guys were mighty men of war. And they come in and say, we're your servants. Do to us whatever you want. I believe a picture of repentance. Lord, we, when we came, we didn't know what else to do. We didn't want to be killed. We were afraid of your God. We wanted to be on your side. We told a lie. You know what? We did lie. We're your servants. We'll, cut, we'll, we'll carry wood. We'll, we'll cut wood. We'll carry water. We'll do anything. It's better than being dead, right? We'd better be slave, your slave than to be dead. Do with us as whatever seems right to you. They weren't worried about their position. 
They were just blessed to be incorporated into Israel. This expresses the heart of David in Psalm 84 where he says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. They said, I'd rather be a wood carrier, a water carrier and a woodcutter in the house of God than to be in a mansion outside of His will. And I know this is an act of repentance. Let's finish up and I want to share with you how the Gibeonites finish up. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, so they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place where he would choose even to this day. So they served at the altar of the Lord. Do you think they might have had some questions when they're going in every time there's a sacrifice? Now what's this sacrifice for? Why are we doing this? Now what's the wood for? And what are they getting taught? The truth. Now, here's what's great. The grace of God at work. These formal idol worshipers are serving in the tabernacle. They're exposed to the truth. They're kept from their former idols. They're kept uh, the idolatry away from Israel. In the end, God did indeed turn evil into good, good, and the Gibeonites found salvation in the God of Israel, much like Rahab did. Rahab was a what in Joshua 2? She was a prostitute, and she got saved. Remember that they painted their window seals red. He told them to hang a red cord out your window so when we come back and, we, and the walls of Jericho come down, you won't die when everybody else does. So there was a picture of the cross hanging out their window. And everybody in her house was delivered, much like Passover. So Rahab was delivered, and Rahab is in the genealogy of whom? Of Jesus. Rahab. So Rahab was a prostitute. Well, the Gibeonites were liars. But yet God delivered them. Aren't you glad? How many liars do we have in the room? Hands on up, you're lying right now. We've all told a lie, amen? Okay, so God delivers liars. Aren't you, aren't you glad? Now we also see that both Rahab and the Gibeonites were willing to risk to forsake their former associations and to be counted amongst God's people. I'll leave everything behind if I can just serve in your court. If I can just be near where to your God is, I don't care. I'll carry wood. I'll carry, I keep saying that, I'll carry water and I'll cut wood, right? Just let me be on your side, God. I've seen what you've done to those who are against you. I want to be for you. And Lord, I'll I'll be a tent maker. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Let me be on your side. Both Rahab and the Gibeonites, after they found salvation through God, had a rich history. Let me tell you about the Gibeonites after Joshua 9, and we'll close with this. The Gibeonites became servants in the tabernacle, just as Joshua said. Gibeon became a priestly city, and the Ark of the Covenant stayed at Gibeon, often in the days of David and Solomon. They went from being liars to the ones who had the Ark of the Covenant stored in their city. At least one of David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles was a Gibeonite. God spoke to Solomon while Solomon was in Gibeon. The Gibeonites were among those who helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. They started rebuilding the walls to protect God's people. These are examples of great things God can do with people who are sinners, but who come to Him with fear, humility, and love. You know what? In this chapter, the people that got it most were the liars from Gibeon. Amen? Because at least from their perspective, they had no other commands of God. They just knew, if I'm not on God's side, I'm in trouble. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get on God's side. Can I encourage you, keep praying for your unsafe spouse. Though your relationship started off wrong, what Satan means for evil, God can use for good. At the same time, don't get involved in relationships and partnerships contrary to God's command. God's grace does not equal God's permission. Amen? So in closing, the enemy and the spirit-filled believer. What are the enemy's thoughts towards you? What are his tactics? He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There are times when he's going to come straight at you trying to make you fearful and retreat or to respond in fleshly pride more often i believe he'll come like a subtle serpent seeking to deceive you attempting to get you to trust in your own fleshly wisdom in your own human reasoning to look at the bread say it's moldy they must be telling the truth he wants you to fall into the trap of trusting in yourself instead of being desperate for god we saw the source of israel's failure what was it they didn't do what they didn't seek the counsel of god they didn't pray How are we to respond when we've blown it? 
Be faithful to your word. You can't go back and change that. You can repent for it and make God's word the priority again. Amen? And then lastly, trust that God in His grace can turn it all around. Because He can. Look what He did with Gibeon. He took these guys who were lying and deceiving the children of Israel and turned them into people that were used for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for Your love and Your grace. And Lord, we come on this Thanksgiving Eve and we know that Thanksgiving is really all about thanking You. We can't thank You enough for what You've done for us. We can't thank You enough for the cross of Christ. And Lord, I thank You for the example in the text tonight. Help us, Lord, to be constantly desperate for You, never leaning on our own understanding, never only looking at things from a physical perspective, but Father, may we constantly be in a position of seeking Your heart always to know Your will. May we not be rushed by the world, but may we wait upon the Lord. Father, I also pray for those who are here who maybe have been outside of your will, gone 180 degrees opposite of what you've commanded them to do, and now they're in the middle of the consequences. Lord, I pray that you would help them to make your word the priority again. Lord, that you would help them to come back to a place of being desperate for you and seeking you in prayer and trusting in you, Lord. And Father, we thank you for the promises and the examples in your word that you will take what Satan means for evil and you will use it for our good. Lord, even when we've blown it, we thank you that you're a faithful God who will restore us out of love for us. Lord, like the prodigal son, when we come home, you will kill the fatted calf and put new clothes on our backs, new ring on our finger because you love us. Lord, if there's people here who have fallen away from you, Lord, may you draw them back unto yourself, even tonight. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.